KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, May 31st, the long-term transportation plan for San Diego County. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported 58 new COVID-19 cases on Sunday. And while case numbers have been down lately, officials are urging the public to take precautions to avoid getting or spreading COVID-19 over the long holiday weekend. Officials say not enough San Diegans have been vaccinated just yet for the region to achieve herd immunity. Be sure to avoid large crowds and wear your masks. Some Scripps Health patients can once again access their health records online. That comes after a ransomware attack that was first discovered about a month ago. A statement posted to the Scripps website over the weekend says systems are now being restored, though there is still more work to be done. Scripps officials say they are supporting a federal investigation into the attack. Escondido City Councilmember Consuelo Martinez is concerned that the city is kicking the issue of legalizing cannabis down the road. A majority of Escondido residents voted to legalize recreational cannabis in 2016. But despite that, the city council recently voted to continue a ban on legal dispensaries within city limits. By upholding the status quo, Martinez says the city is at risk of advocates putting the measure on the ballot once again, and the city would lose its say on how to regulate regulate dispensaries. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Last Friday, elected officials weighed in on a new long-term transportation plan for San Diego County. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says it's proposing big changes from the status quo, and it's already creating political squabbles. More frequent trolleys, faster buses, 200 miles of new high-speed commuter trains. These are just a few of the highlights from the draft regional transportation plan proposed by the San Diego Association of Governments, or SANDAG. The agency says this is what it will take for the county to meet tough state requirements to lower greenhouse gas emissions. We're reimagining the future of transportation system. We're allowing San Diegans to dream. But the only way they can achieve these dreams, if you as leader make it possible for them. The mass transit expansion would only work if cities change their zoning laws and permit the kind of dense housing that lets more people live within walking distance of a bus or rail station. Increasingly, as we look at the responsibilities for our housing goals, you know, it's often asked, where's the infrastructure? Well, this plan uh, describes where some of the infrastructure will come from. Uh, and I'm pleased that the infrastructure that is proposed is multimodal in nature, actually giving San Diegans real choices uh, that they don't currently 
currently enjoy, but must enjoy, certainly by the year 2050, if we're going to protect our famous quality of life. Political disputes over the plan were on full display Friday. In contrast to previous plans, the new one doesn't call for freeway widenings. It would, however, create more carpool and toll lanes that get more expensive during rush hour. Sandag's more conservative board members have already said they're not on board with that idea. I feel that there needed to be more, you know, more benefit to North County in and around the, the 78 corridor and most importantly, the I-5 corridor, not just for the vehicles um, that we drive, but also for transit or not transit, I mean, uh, goods movement. So at this moment in time, if I was to vote on this, I would not be able to support it. You can see the plan in detail at sdforward.com. After a public review period, Sandag board members are expected to vote on the transportation plan by December. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. A popular post on social media claims businesses in the U.S. can't legally require customers to provide proof of vaccination or deny entry based on vaccination status. PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols explored those claims with anchor Randall White in this week's Can You Handle the Truth segment. Chris, where did this post come from? This comes from a website called Healthy American. It's run by an anti-mask activist in Orange County. And the website has been the source of a lot of misinformation in the past. The claim about businesses not being able to require proof of vaccinations is just not accurate, but it was shared on Instagram and Twitter and received more than 60,000 views within two days last week. It was flagged by Facebook users. And our PolitiFact California contributor, Sasha Hupka, examined it through our social media fact-checking initiative. The post cites the Fourth Amendment as the reason businesses can't require this proof. What did legal experts have to say about that? Well, the Fourth Amendment states that Americans have rights against unreasonable searches and seizures from the government. But legal experts pointed out that asking a person for proof of vaccination does not constitute a search or a seizure and private businesses are not the government entities addressed in the amendment. Chris, remind us about the freedoms businesses do and do not have when it comes to dealing with customers. There are some limits. That's right. Under the Civil Rights Act, private businesses cannot discriminate on the basis of race, gender, religion, national origin, or disability. But aside from that, businesses generally are able to set their own rules on their private property. Even so, legal experts told us that businesses might have to provide reasonable accommodations, at least for those customers who can't be vaccinated because of a disability or religious belief before they can refuse service. This might include allowing the customer to enter wearing a mask or offering them a virtual no contact version of the service that the business provides. How did PolitiFact California rate the claim about businesses not being able to require proof of vaccination? We rated that claim false. Finally, Chris, there's always more questionable claims spreading on social media. PolitiFact found one that discourages people from getting a COVID-19 vaccine because it suggests, and wrongly so, that doing so could jeopardize your life insurance policy. Tell us about that one. 
This post was also flagged by Facebook users and it's been circulating online for a while now. And you're right, the claim is not accurate. Back in March, the American Council of Life Insurers, a trade group that represents about 280 companies, they issued a statement calling this claim entirely false information. We found that life insurance companies, trade groups, and state regulatory agencies have all said that the COVID-19 vaccine does not play a role in life insurance eligibility or payouts. And we rated the claim on Facebook as false. That was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols speaking with anchor Randall White. Full versions of all fact checks are available at capradio.org slash PolitiFact. Coming up, the pandemic is just the latest challenge for a North County farming family of Japanese descent. They've also had to overcome legal barriers and internment camps. If you had a Japanese face and you had Japanese ancestry, even though you're an American citizen, uh, they, they interned you, they it put you in jail. That and more up next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. A North County farming family of Japanese descent has persevered and prospered over generations despite numerous challenges. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has more. Donald Yasukochi and his daughter Brianne walk the farmland that once belonged to his parents and grandparents. We're growing corn, we have artichokes, asparagus, we have um, you know, raspberries, blueberries, strawberries. The land that now grows a variety of fruits and vegetables has a rich history that began in Japan. Donald Yasukochi's grandparents were farmers in Japan before they decided to leave their farm behind and head to America. When they came over, they weren't just welcome with open arms. The California Alien Land Law banned aliens ineligible for citizenship from owning land. But not everyone agreed with the law that worked against immigrants, and generous American farmers gave the Yasukochis a chance. They were able to settle in Oceanside in 1924, where they began dehydrating chilies. Here's a picture of my grandfather. He is the one standing on the truck, and these are the dried chilies. Uh, he was known as the king of the chilies. But everything the Yasukochis built came to a halt after the attack on Pearl Harbor. If you had a Japanese face and you had Japanese ancestry, even though you're an American citizen, uh, they, they interned you. They it put you in jail. Yasukochi's grandparents were separated from each other along with their children and sent to internment camps in New Mexico and Arizona. Most of the Japanese American families lost everything and they had to come back. When they were released, they, they, uh, I think they gave them $25. When the Yasukochis returned to their farm, they were relieved to find that Mr. Gray, a generous Escondido school teacher, had taken care of their land. And my mother used to like run us out to Escondido and Oceanside to Escondido is not 20 minutes like nowadays. It was like a 
two and a half hours in a back road and it took forever to get out there. But we had to go see Mr. Gray. We had to take him our fresh corn. My mother was just like, always like, you know, hey, you know what? We're giving back. We have to give back. The Yasukochis expanded into Carlsbad and began growing and selling wholesale tomatoes. Semi truckloads full of tomatoes. In the late 80s, Yasukochi family farms transitioned from wholesale to growing a variety of different fruits and vegetables to sell in farmers markets. Now into the fourth generation of the Yasukochi family, Brianne Yasukochi had to help the family farm overcome a new hurdle, the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, you know, we were like, okay, the farmer's markets are closing down, you know, we might have to shut down because we don't have a viable source of income. With pallets of fresh produce, the Yasukochis had to get creative and decided to promote their community-supported agriculture boxes. The CSA boxes come stocked with fresh produce and are delivered for free. They saw it online, on Facebook and, well, I don't know what, what they do, Instagram, and my daughter was doing it. And before you know it, the phone was ringing off the hook. At a time when stores were low on food, the CSA boxes went viral and the Yasukochis had to meet the demand. But the boxes didn't only help the Yasukochi farm stay in business. They also gave nearby farmers a chance to include their produce in the boxes. We work, I would say, with five to seven different farmers throughout the week, depending on the season and what they have. And so giving them a place to sell their produce while at the same time giving the customers the connection of where the produce is coming from has been a win-win for everybody. The CSA boxes range from $25 to $35 and include free delivery anywhere in San Diego County. Customers can also add locally grown flowers, olive oil, and jams. That was KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. She recently spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh to talk more about her story. Here's that interview. How many generations of the Yasukochi family have been farming in the North County? They are now into their fourth generation, and it was really interesting to see how much their farm has changed with each generation that has managed the farm. And is it the same land that their grandparents farmed in Oceanside in the 1920s? They do have their original house that their grandparents lived in, and they do have the same land, and they've acquired even more land now in Fallbrook, Bonzel, and Oceanside. You told us that during World War II, the Yasukochi family, along with tens of thousands of Japanese Americans, were sent to internment camps. What stories have come down to this generation about that time? Well, you know, the story about them just being taken from one day to the next from their farm and their everyday life is already a very interesting story and a piece of history that has been passed down. Donald Yasukochi told me his grandparents were separated. So not only were they taken from their farm, they were both separated. His grandfather was sent to New Mexico, while his grandmother and mother were sent to Arizona. They really had no time to make plans for their farm, so they had no idea what they were going to return to. You know, and to their surprise, a generous Escondido school teacher, Mr. Gray, took care of their land. And, and you can tell that the family is just forever grateful to him and for his progressive way of thinking at that time. This family would have every right to harbor a sense of outrage over their treatment during the war. How have they processed you know, that really dark time? Yeah, every right. But I really think that they use that rage to succeed. They use their farming skills that they brought with them from Japan and made a name for themselves in a business that now four generations later have been able to live off of. 
Right now, uh, we're seeing an upsurge in hate crimes directed against Asian Americans. Is this a reminder to the Yasukochi family about the bad old days of the war? I believe it is. You know, their family has a history of barriers preventing them from succeeding over and over again. And COVID and anti-Asian hate crimes are just one more thing to add. But they're they're not going to let that break them down. And just like the generations before them, they figured out a way to survive and not only survive, but they were able to help fellow farmers sell their produce that would have otherwise gone gone to waste. It seems that one hallmark of this family farm's success has been its ability to change and to innovate. Tell us about how the farm has changed over the years. You know, their story is so representative of innovation as each generation has taken over the farm. They started dehydrating chilies with a special machine, which was very innovative back in the day. Then they moved on to growing and selling wholesale tomatoes, becoming one of the biggest distributors in California. They moved on to diversifying their crops to a variety of fruits and vegetables and selling them at farmers markets. You know, but the pandemic ultimately put a stop to the farmers markets. And here comes Brianne Yasukochi, the youngest generation to take over the farm, who used social media to promote the farm's CSA boxes with free delivery. And this was at a time when grocery stores were low on food. So, you know, that just went viral. And that was another big innovation that didn't go over immediately with the older generation on the farm. Tell us about that. It was the cutest thing, Maureen. I mean, Donald, you know, the Brianne's dad was very surprised that social media brought this much attention to their farm and the CSA boxes. And it's it's really cool to see how now they're using social media to even further their business. You know, the dad, you see him on Facebook and he's making small videos, uh, tip of the week videos is what they're called. And he shows you how to cook the vegetables that you get in your CSA boxes. So, you know, now they're using social media and it's just really cool to see how now they're using technology, you know, to better advance their business. Since the pandemic seems finally to be easing up, do the Yasukochis and the other farmers involved plan to keep up the CSA boxes? Oh yes, the CSA boxes are definitely here to stay and their program has extended to all of San Diego County. They kept the free delivery. You get a box full of fresh, organic and pesticide-free fruits and vegetables and they let us get a little taste and oh my goodness, I definitely recommend everything was fresh and tasty and we were watching it, you know, just get go from the ground to our hands so it was beautiful and I think in the future they do want to open up their farms to the public for some strawberry and blueberry picking. Profiling this family, Tanya, was right in line with the end of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. How did their amazing story, how did it come to your attention? You know, it's not very often you find a family-run farm, especially four generations deep with such a rich history. And, you know, as I do North County reporting, our community forgets that Oceanside holds a large farming community. And the Yasukochis are one of the few that have been here for almost a century. So, it, you know, they really stick out and they're very special. Well, thank you for bringing us this story. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you.
This year, Mexico is celebrating an anniversary. It's been 500 years since the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire. In part to mark that anniversary, Mexico has been actively working on the repatriation of archaeological objects, some of them from the U.S. But is this a righteous search for historic justice or a crusade to strengthen nationalism? From KJZZ's Fronteras Desk Bureau in Mexico City, Rodrigo Cervantes reports. Historian Veca Duncan and I meet at La Conchita Square in southern Mexico City, the place where conquistador Hernán Cortés settled as he founded Mexico City on top of the defeated capital of the Aztec or Mexica Empire. I mean, maybe in a bench very similar to this, Hernán Cortés sat at some point. Mexico's current government is commemorating 500 years of the fall of Tenochtitlan, the ancient Mexico City. As part of the celebration, some avenues and squares are taking back pre-Columbian names. Duncan says the idea may be adequate to honor indigenous communities and fight racism. Um, what I don't like so much is the political use of that. Mexico's president has asked Spain to apologize for its colonialism in the country while instructing his wife to tour Europe to collect archaeological artifacts extracted from Mexican soil. Controversy followed, but Duncan says Mexico's actions also respond to a global trend against colonialism there is a very rightful claim for European museums and American museums, I have to say, to give back some of these pieces. In this effort to decolonize our societies, we have to also decolonize our cultural institutions and our museums. But Duncan says some governments and institutions from developed countries defend their right to maintain their pieces, arguing more and better resources. I think that's also you could say a very racist argument, right? It's like, you know, only white European people know how to, how to preserve historic artifacts. Diego Prieto is head of Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History. He says the push to return historic artifacts is not new and that Mexico is not alone. Que los bienes culturales estén en el ámbito Prieto says world treaties establish that cultural goods should be kept in those countries where their cultural and symbolic values originate. Mexican law also establishes that historical objects belong to the nation. El alma no se vende. You can't sell your soul, Prieto says. He says unregulated markets, along with looting, have allowed many artifacts to end up in private collections or institutions overseas. 5,430 objetos culturales. The anthropologist says Mexico has recovered more than 5,400 objects since 2019. The vast majority of them came from the U.S. In March, the Mexican consulate in Nogales received 280 archaeological artifacts, most of them obtained from Department of Homeland Security seizures. But for years, the crown jewel for many Mexicans is in Austria, and it is quite possibly a crown itself, a penacho or plume allegedly given by Moctezuma to Cortés. That's President Andrés Manuel López Obrador saying that it was an impossible mission for his wife to bring the plume from Vienna's ethnographic museum since Austrians have taken permanent ownership of it. Gerardo Familiar is an expert in museology and Mesoamerican history at the Extension School in Canada of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. He explains that recent investigations between Austria and Mexico determined it was best to keep it in Vienna. The object was deemed too fragile for transportation. Familiar says the agreement illustrates a path that many governments and institutions could follow. And I firmly believe that uh, both Mexico and Austria share a joint responsibility toward the object's uh, preservation for future generations. The expert says the current repatriation of historical objects in Mexico responds to a nationalistic rhetoric. But he says it's important that historic objects return to the communities where they have special significance.
In my opinion, what defines an object with a cultural or historical significance is, uh, has to do with the heritage. Familiar says many indigenous communities in North America consider these artifacts sacred objects, like an extension of their beings. And in those cases, he says it's important to return those artifacts. For the expert, collaboration and friendly dialogue between countries, institutions and ethnic groups will be fundamental for years to come to protect the objects that history has left behind. That was KJZZ's Rodrigo Cervantes reporting from Mexico City. That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.